0: Take your Bibles and open them up to Revelation chapter 17. If you're not there already, if you have one of our Bibles, you can find that on page 1099. And again, as always, if you're using that Bible and you need that Bible, keep that Bible and take it home with you and read that uh, with friends and family. And uh, uh, we need the word of God every day, not just uh, for a little bit on Sunday mornings. Okay? Uh, this is nourishment to our souls. This is uh, it, literally life giving to us. Psalm 119 tells us that over and over and over again. So I want to encourage you, have that in front of you so you can see what God says this morning, uh, even as I attempt to communicate that. Uh, We have just a few weeks left in our uh, series in Revelation. Uh, uh, Last week, we, we wrapped up the judgment cycles where we looked at three different camera angles, if you will, of the same thing. The seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls all revealed God's Uh, we we might call them little J judgments uh, that he's uh, executing throughout the earth after Christ's resurrection and that lead up to this final big J judgment, if you will, of the whole earth when Christ returns. And last week, the seven bowls showed us this full strength picture of God's holy wrath against an unholy world in response to the prayers of God's people that he made holy People that are persecuted and killed by the world. And we saw that God is actually worthy to be worshipped because of that wrath that he pours out. Psalm 79 verses 12 and 13 says, Pay back sevenfold to our neighbors the reproach they have hurled at you, Lord. Then we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will thank you forever. We will declare your praise to generation after generation. You see, the sevenfold trumpets and the sevenfold seals and the sevenfold bowls all reveal that God is already and will finally pay back sevenfold the reproach that the world has hurled at him and his people. And as we near the end of the book of, of Revelation, we're going to see yet again that we have reason to thank God and praise him forever. There's three major sections left in this book, and each section will, will zoom in and give us an expanded final picture of the three, three of the major themes uh, that John has already been writing out about throughout this book. One is the fall of Babylon, the final battle, and then the third one is the new creation. The final picture of Babylon's fall starts here in chapter 17 and goes through chapter 19, verse 10. We're going to look at chapter 17 this morning. And then finish this section up next week. Uh, My friend and brother John Watts is going to come back and and preach for us again next week and finish that out. Chapter 17 is going to give us this shocking picture that is meant to remind us that even though Babylon will fall in the end, and it will, that doesn't mean that we can let our guard down now. We can't. And so I want to pray because I need help this morning. And I hope that you recognize that you do too. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you that your word is truth. And that it teaches us not only the depth of our sin, but the depths that you have gone to free us from it in Christ. Father, we pray this morning that we would receive your word humbly because it's able to save souls, it's able to sanctify hearts, it's able to keep us and lead us to glory with Christ. And we pray that you would accomplish all those things for Christ's glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna make a really strong and maybe offensive statement to start off with this morning. And I thought about Do I really need to say this? And I I think I do. Everyone in this room has solicited the services of a prostitute. Stay with me. Stay with me. Everyone in this room has solicited the services of a prostitute. Probably not literally, but every one of us has done it spiritually spiritually. Literal prostitution has been called the world's oldest profession, and I think the same can be said about spiritual prostitution. Because since mankind turned away from God in the Garden of Eden, humanity has been in the business of buying and selling counterfeit love and pleasure at a premium price. And because all human beings ever after, ever since the fall in the Garden, all human beings are born in sin, that means that we have all been patrons of the spiritual red light district. We solicit. We're all tempted to solicit the services of the world in different ways, but when we give in to that temptation, we need to understand that the pleasure is always short-lived and never worth the cost. Here's what our passage is going to teach us this morning, what it's going to show us, because we need to be reminded of this, or we need to see it for the first time. The ways of this world are are seductive. Maybe you already know that. But they're also self destructive. So we need to resist the prostitute and remain faithful to our true love. The ways of this world are are seductive but they're also self-destructive. So we need to resist the prostitute and remain faithful to our true love. Like most of the other passages that we've read, this one starts with an, an introduction to another vision that John is about to have. Look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the judgment of the notorious prostitute who is seated on many waters. The kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her, and those who live on the earth became drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. Just no holds barred right off the bat. This is a good reminder that Revelation is less concerned with the chronology of events in the world and more concerned with the chronology of the visions from heaven. The seventh, the seventh bowl judgment described the end of the world, right? We saw that last week. But here, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls has something else to show John. That means that what John is about to see doesn't happen after the end of the world. How can it? But instead, it elaborates on something that he's already been shown. This vision comes after the vision of the seven bowls, but it expands on something that the seven bowls already revealed. And the angel tells John what that is right here in these verses the judgment of the notorious prostitute. Now, there's been no mention of a prostitute yet in Revelation, but the angel's words in verse 2 give us a clue that we already know who she is. Back in chapter 14, in another vision, an angel cried out, It has fallen. Babylon the Great, a.k.a. the Notorious, that's what great means, has fallen. She made the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. And in the description of the seventh bowl in chapter 16, John said that the great city, the notorious city, split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great, a.k.a. the notorious, was remembered in God's presence. He gave her the cup filled with the wrath of his fierce anger. Here, the angel tells John, now I'm going to show you what that looks like for God to give her that cup. We're going to rewind the tape, John, and we're going to zoom in And I'm going to show you the extent of this judgment of this notorious prostitute. And we're going to see what that looks like over the next couple of chapters, especially in chapter 18 when we get there next week. But before the angel shows John what the judgment looks like, he he wants to show John what the prostitute looks like. And we need to see that too. So let's keep going. Verse 3 through 6. Then he carried me away in the spirit to a, a wilderness. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, jewels, and pearls. She had a golden cup in her hand filled with everything detestable and with the impurities of her prostitution. On her forehead was written a name, a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the detestable things of the earth. And then I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Now the wilderness is, here is a symbolic picture of the world. It's a place where God protects his people, which we saw in chapter 12 when the woman fled to the wilderness. A different woman, the woman that represents the church. But it's also a place of spiritual desolation where sin runs rampant and God's enemies persecute God's people, which we also saw in chapter 12. It's in this wilderness that the angel shows John that the prostitute and the beast are actually working together. The description of the beast here in verse 3 lets us know that it's the same beast from the beginning of chapter 13. Seven heads and ten horns, right? And it reminds us that the behind this scarlet beast... What's scarlet? It's red, right? Behind this scarlet beast is the fiery red dragon with seven heads and ten horns who's dressing this prostitute up in scarlet and pimping her out to the world. The description of the prostitute in verse 4 reminds us that wickedness doesn't always look wicked. It doesn't. We're told elsewhere in Scripture that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. This woman is clothed in things that give the impression of prosperity and wealth and power and security. On the outside, everything she has, including the cup of her hand, in her hand, looks good and desirable. It's, golden, it's a golden cup, right? But what's inside that cup? What's it filled with? Everything detestable and the impurities of her prostitution. Detestable to who? To God. It's filled with every kind of sin, which the angel figuratively calls sexual immorality in verse 2, which certainly includes literal sexual immorality, but it's not limited to that. It also includes things like malice and hatred and envy bitterness, jealousy, murder, lying, slander, gossip, idolatry, adultery, defiance, rebellion, selfishness, drunkenness, pride, deception, lust, covetous, covetousness, covetousness, you know what I'm talking about, greed, theft, and the list goes on and on and on. We're given lists like this over and over in the, in the scriptures, aren't we? I didn't, I didn't just tell you anything the Bible hasn't already told us. Every kind of sin is in that cup. Everything that the world does that is detestable to God, including persecuting God's people, which is described here as the woman being drunk on the blood of the saints who are faithful witnesses to the truth about Christ. Persecution, oppression, death. The woman is drunk from this sinful wine, and so are the king, kings of the earth who drink from her cup. Verse 5 removes any doubt in case we still wonder who this woman is, this notorious prostitute, because her name is written across her forehead. And it's unavoidable. This is a ridiculously long name. You can't hide this, right? In Revelation, a name on a forehead reveals that individual's character and whether or not she, he or she belongs to God or to Satan. The name written on her forehead is Babylon the Great, the Notorious, the mother of prostitutes and of the detestable things of the earth. That tells us something about her character, doesn't it? It tells us who she belongs to, doesn't it? But here's the thing. Even though we know that she's turning tricks for the devil, it's still difficult not to find her attractive. Not to be enticed by what she has to offer. John says, when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Even in this vision, he's shocked and he's perplexed and he's captivated all at the same time. John needs help making sense of what he's seeing and so do we and by God's grace, the angel is there to do exactly that. Let's keep going, verse 7. Then the angel said to me, "'Why are you astonished? "'I will explain to you the mystery of the woman "'and of the beast with the seven heads "'and the ten horns that carries her. "'The beast that you saw was and is not "'and is about to come up from the abyss "'and go to destruction.'" Those who live on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast that was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain only for a little while. The beast that was and is not is itself an eighth king. But belongs to the seven and is going to destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. Well, that clears it all up, doesn't it? Right? This beast goes from having seven heads in verse seven to being seven heads in verse nine to being an eighth head in verse 11. And the woman is seated on the beast, but she's also seated on the heads. And back in verse one or two, uh, we're told that she was seated on many waters, right? It all makes perfect sense now. We can pray and go with God, right? What in the world is going on here? What's this angel getting at with all of this? Well, he tells John that the seven heads of the beasts are mountains. And we know that mountains are often used in Revelation and in the Old Testament as a metaphor for powerful kingdoms and empires. And that's what the mountains are here. We don't even have to assume because John or the angel already tells them that. Seven mountains are seven kings. The seven heads are seven mountains and the seven mountains are kings, right? And the beast itself is an eighth king and the 10 horns are 10 kings. Now, when the seven churches that John originally wrote to would have heard seven mountains, they would have immediately thought of Rome as as the kingdom that he was talking about, which is known in their day as the city on seven hills, right? We've talked about this before. And Rome is certainly one of the kingdoms that this imagery points to. But the point here is not to try to line up history and figure out what kings uh, the the angel is talking about. the, The point is not to figure out who all these kings and kingdoms are. The point is to understand how wicked world powers with wicked world leaders have been supporting a wicked world system throughout the world's history. All the time. Everywhere. As John Watts put it when he preached on chapter 13 here a couple weeks ago, the beast casts its shadow in every age. We don't need to know who the kings and kingdoms are if we can recognize the shape. Right? Because that will tell us who they are. These wicked kingdoms rise and fall, and then more wicked kingdoms come to power after them. That's why the beast is referred to as the one that was and is not and is to come. All the wicked kingdoms of this world cast his shadow. When when a wicked kingdom rises and then finally gets uh, uh, defeated and overturned by by, uh, another world power, we rejoice, right? Aren't you glad Hitler's still not here? But look at the world now. The beast was and is not and is to come. Beastly kingdoms just feel like they won't die. They just keep coming back and back and back. The emperors, the the empires of this world, though, we need to remember our forgeries of the true one who was and is and is to come, right? Who is that? Help me. It's Jesus, right? They're counterfeit messiahs, we need to hear this, that claim that their way is the way, that their truth is the truth, and that their life is the life, and no one comes to prosperity or security except through them. And people will believe them and be astonished by them because those people have the beast's name written on their foreheads and they belong to the devil. Their names haven't been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, so they'll be seduced into believing the beast's claims and drinking the prostitute's wine. But we need to understand this. The authority of these empires is a forgery too, because these empires are not everlasting. We only need to look at the history of the world to see that. Hitler isn't still here, right? But somebody else just as wicked has taken his place, and not just, not, I'm not talking about Germany I'm talking about just all of the world powers. Their power is short-lived. The angel says that they'll receive authority for one hour. To use our language, we might say they'll get their 15 minutes of fame. Whether that 15 minutes lasts five years, 50 years, 500 years. In light of eternity, in the grand scheme of things... These empires will only remain for a little while. They're all ultimately headed for destruction because they're all, listen to me, pimps and patrons of the prostitute. They solicit her services and they use her to get what they want. If the beast is a picture of the wicked world powers and wicked world leaders, then the prostitute is a picture of the wicked world system that they adhere to. Another name for Babylon we could use is uh, a, a word, worldliness. Worldliness, which one author helpfully defines as that system of values in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspective. That means that we're the ones that are calling the shots, right? It displaces God and his truth from the world which makes, and it makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. Don't we live in a world that does this? In other words, it's a world system that's fueled by and patterned after the first sin in the garden when our first parents thought, oh, you know what? I think that serpent's on to something. We can be God and we can call the shots. We can actually say what's right and good. Go read the language in Genesis 3 6. Eve looked at the fruit and she saw that it was good. Who does that sound like? The Lord that created the heavens and the earth and saw that it was good, right? This pattern is everywhere. We need to understand that the prostitute sits on the beast wherever societies addicted to pleasure and security appoint leaders addicted to power. Sinful people want to do whatever they want without consequences or condemnation, and so they put leaders in positions of authority who will give them what they want at every level. And those leaders oblige because they don't want to lose their position and their status. Don't we see this in our culture? And the people of God who live in those societies are faced with an ultimatum. Sleep with the prostitute and drink her wine or become a target for oppression and persecution. Compromise with the culture or be condemned by it. Remember what Jesus had against some of the people in the church at Thyatira back in chapter 2? If you remember, Thyatira was an economic city that was run by a large number of trade organizations that required all of their participants, uh, uh, all of their members in the organization to participate in idolatrous practices or risk being ostracized if they refused. That put Christians in a really tough spot that lived in Thyatira, right? Compromise with the culture or be condemned by it. The problem was, though, There was a self-proclaimed prophetess that went around convincing some of the people in the Thyatiran church that it was okay to go along with the idolatrous demands of the trade organizations since their livelihood was on the line. You know what that is? That's treating money as the provider and not God as the provider. You need to do this so so that you can get the money you need. It's okay. Jesus called this prophetess Jezebel. Like the seductress in the Old Testament who turned Ahab, king of Israel, away from following the Lord, when the people of Judah were exiled by historical Babylon in the Old Testament, many of them compromised and adapted, or adopted the Babylonian lifespan, lifestyle. Why? So they could blend in. They could live quietly, right, and avoid being persecuted were called out as people of God. The Israelites had a habit of blending in with the surrounding nations. God called them out of the surrounding nations to be a people for him and that they gave themselves to the nations, worshiping their false gods, committing spiritual adul- adultery against the one true God. That's the reason they were in exile in the first place. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God used some strong language to describe his people's wickedness. He said that they acted like a prostitute with these nations. And let me tell you something. If you think the language here in Revelation 17 is shocking, then you need to go home and read Ezekiel chapter 16 and chapter 23. The language there will make you blush. And that comes straight out of God's mouth through his prophet's. But that's the point. This is the point. We are meant to see just how detestable spiritual adultery and idolatry are to God. God never minces words or softens his tone when it comes to sin, never. So we shouldn't be saying when we read this, wow, I can't believe God said that. What this is meant to do is make us look inward at our own hearts and go, man, I can't believe I do that. Lord help me. Where will my help come from? From the maker of heaven and earth. You see it's not just the Israelites in the Old Testament, it's not just the first century churches that John is writing to. The reality is that every one of us are capable of being captivated by the prostitute and paying her fees. She's desirable These pleasures, they feel like pleasures, but they're fleeting. They're false securities. They're short-term comforts, and yet we run to them over and over and over again. In Proverbs chapter 7, King Solomon tells a parable to his sons that I think is instructive for us as we think about this vision that the angel's showing John here in Revelation 17. Here's Proverbs 7, uh, verses 6 through 27. Just listen. You can go look at it later. "'At the window of my house I looked through my lattice.' I saw among the inexperienced, I noticed among the youths a man, young man lacking sense. Crossing the street near her corner, he strolled down the road to her house at twilight in the evening, in the dark of night. Is darkness ever good in scripture? Does it ever lead anywhere good in scripture? We know this, it doesn't, right? A woman came to meet him, dressed like a prostitute, having a hidden agenda. We might say she was dressed in purple, And scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. She's loud and defiant. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, she lurks at every corner. She grabs him and kisses him and brazenly says to him, I've made fellowship offerings. Today I've fulfilled my vows. So I came out to meet you. I came to search for you, and look, I found you. I've spread coverings on my bed, richly colored linen from Egypt, probably purple and scarlet. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of love-making until morning. Do you know what she's doing? She's trying to get him drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. Let's feast on each other's love. My husband isn't home. He went on a long journey. He took a bag of silver with him and and will come home at the time of the full moon. She seduces him with her persistent pleading. She lures with her flattering talk. He follows her impulsively like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer bounding toward a trap until an arrow pierces its liver like a bird darting into a snare. He doesn't know. It will cost him his life. Now, sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words from my mouth. Don't let your heart turn aside to her ways. Don't stray onto her paths, for she has brought many down to death. Her victims are countless. Her house is the road to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. Son, she's drunk with blood. She's drunk with blood. You see, a prostitute gives herself to you in order to get something from you. And we need to understand that while a literal prostitute may be after your money, the spiritual prostitute, the the notorious prostitute, is always after your life. Always. Always. The book of Proverbs personifies wisdom and folly as two very different women. And just before Solomon told this parable to his sons, he said this at the beginning of chapter 7. My son, obey my words and treasure my commands. Keep my commands and live and guard my instructions as you would the pupil of your eye. Tie them to your fingers and write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call understanding your relative She will keep you. Wisdom will keep you from a forbidden woman, a wayward woman with her flattering talk. Wisdom will keep you from folly. If we don't want to be lured by the prostitute, then we need wisdom to keep us from her, right? And wouldn't you know it? That's exactly what the angel told John in verse 9. This calls for a mind that has wisdom. And what does wisdom help us understand? Well, we've already seen that the beast is a picture of the wicked world powers and wicked world leaders, and the prostitute is a picture of the wicked world system that they adhere to. But now that we know their identities, we need to understand their destinies. Where are these, the, the prostitute and the beast headed? And we get that understanding in these next verses. Look at verse 13. And we'll finish out the chapter here. These have one purpose. They give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will conquer them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Those with him are called, chosen, and faithful. He also said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute was seated are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The ten horns you saw and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his plan by having one purpose, And to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman you saw is the great city, the notorious city, that has royal power over the kings of the earth. This calls for a mind that has wisdom. So here are four things that wisdom points out to us in these last verses. First, the leaders in John's day and the leaders in our day give their power and authority to the beast. What does that mean? That means they perpetuate the wicked ways of the prostitute even when they think that what they're doing is right and good. Why? Because they're drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. We we make really poor decisions if we're drunk, right? That doesn't mean that there are no Christian leaders anywhere, but it does mean that there is no such thing as a Christian nation. Wisdom shows us that there is only the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. One is a pure and spotless bride, as we'll see when we get to chapters 19 and 21. The other is a notorious and detestable prostitute. Wisdom reminds us that every Christian already belongs to the kingdom of God, but currently lives as an exile in this world. We live in Babylon. No matter what the geographical name says on our map. Second, worldliness is called worldliness for a reason. It's all over the world. It's everywhere, right? Back in verse one, John saw the notorious prostitute seated on many waters. Here in verse 15, the angel tells John that the many waters he saw are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Wisdom reminds us that sin is an equal opportunist. All of humanity has fallen. And that means that all of the world's systems are fallen. The whole world is under the sway of the evil one. John tells us that in, in one of his letters, 1 John 5. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Paul tells us that in Romans 3. And so when the world holds out a golden cup that seems appealing, wisdom tells us, hold on, look inside. Find out what's in that cup before you take a drink. And when we when we began the sermon series, I said that the responsible way to read the book of Revelation is not with the news headlines in one hand and Revelation in the other, but with the Old Testament in one hand and Revelation in the other. The Old Testament helps us understand what we see in the book of Revelation because there's so many allusions to the Old Testament in this book. And when we understand the book of Revelation, then it helps us understand what we see in the world. So wisdom tells us to pay attention first to scripture. Pay attention to scripture and wisdom will help you recognize how the prostitute tries to seduce you. While you're paying attention to scripture, pay attention to the major news headlines and you'll see how the prostitute speaks. While you're paying attention to Scripture, pay attention to ads on a screen and you'll see what the prostitute values. While you're paying attention to Scripture, pay attention to social media posts and political agendas and you'll see what the prostitute says is right and good. While you're paying attention to Scripture, pay attention to the entertainment and economic industries and you will see what the prostitute worships. Third, Sooner or later, the beast will grow tired of the prostitute's wine, and he will turn on her in hatred. Verse 16 here echoes the judgment that God said he would bring against Israel in Ezekiel chapter 16 and 23. Almost word for word in in some of those uh, verses. Because Israel acted like a prostitute. One pastor said that verse 16 is a picture of the self-destructive cycle that happens when sinful societies attract godless leaders who then, through their bad leadership, run that society into the ground. And we all say, yeah, amen, right? What happens when a society full of self-centered people appoints self-centered leaders to implement a wicked world system? What happens Everything implodes. Everything implodes because the system cannot sustain itself when everybody wants to be God. Wisdom tells us that if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished You know what? Wisdom incarnate said that. Jesus in Mark chapter 3. And that leads us to the fourth and final thing that wisdom points out to us in these verses. Church, God is firmly in control. Firmly in control. Verse 17 says that God has put it into their hearts to carry out his plan, and they'll do what he has planned until the words of God are fulfilled. That's what happened at the cross, You know that? In Acts chapter 2, when Peter was addressing his fellow Jews on the day of Pentecost after the Holy Spirit came and filled all of the disciples, he told the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, though Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. You see, wicked Jewish leaders who were drunk with self-centered power from the prostitute's wine used their power and authority to put Jesus to death. But their power and authority was no match for God's power and authority. He used their sinful plan to carry out his sovereign plan. And here's the beauty of God's plan. It's through the death of Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection from the grave that we... Solicitors of the prostitute can find forgiveness for our sin and freedom from the prostitute that we've solicited for so long. This is the beauty of the gospel. Jesus resisted the golden cup that the prostitute offered him in the wilderness. And I'm not just talking about the 40 days that he spent in the literal wilderness. I'm talking about the entire life that he lived here on the wilderness of the earth. He never sinned, not even once. Not even once. I don't even know how many times I've sinned this morning. It's probably more than you. This is the the beauty of the gospel. He resisted the golden cup of the prostitute, but our Savior willingly drank the cup of God's wrath from the Father's hand. From the Father's hand, Why? So that he could offer us a cup of living water and eternal blessing to all who turn away from their sin and put their trust in him. Listen to me. If you're not a follower of Christ, that means that you are in bed with the prostitute. It's a bed that we're all familiar with because we've all lived self centered lives and we've all done what is right in our own eyes. This is what scripture tells us. This is why we sing songs that don't make us out to be the hero. We need the hero. But those of us who are in Christ have been captivated by something far greater than a golden cup, than purple and scarlet linens, than pearls, than gold. Anything that this prostitute has to offer, we've been captivated by grace. And that grace is not just a thing, that grace is a person and his name is Jesus. Until you see the true beauty of Christ and what he has done for you, for you, you won't see the true ugliness of the prostitute who only takes from you. Don't keep yourself away from, don't, don't keep giving yourself away to the sinful ways of this world that you'll only end up hating in the end. The prostitute and the beast don't get along forever give yourself to christ and you will know what real love is real true lasting love you'll know what it feels like to no longer have shame and guilt confess your sin to him ask for his forgiveness and then rest in his grace You don't have to worry about being left desolate and naked when you are covered by the blood of the lamb. That's the scarlet that we need. That's the red that that washes us white. Why don't we have to be to worry about that? Verse 14 tells us, because the beastly kingdoms that will make the prostitute desolate and naked will also make war with the lamb, but the lamb will conquer them, every last one of them. Why? Why? because he's Lord of lords, and he's King of kings. It doesn't matter how many horns the beast has. It doesn't matter how many heads the beast has. It doesn't matter how many mountains there are. Not one of them is greater than our King Jesus. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords, and those with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. Church wisdom reminds us that Christ has called us out of the brothel and into His kingdom. We are—we were walking in darkness when we heard Christ's gospel call to follow Him and walk in the light. Wisdom also reminds us that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, purchased by the blood of Christ to be His own possession, so that we might proclaim the praises of the. One who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is not because of anything we have done. It's because of everything that Jesus has done. And wisdom doesn't just remind us to be faithful. Wisdom reminds us that we are faithful to our king. Did you catch that? Those with him are called, chosen, and faithful. That's what the verse says. Wisdom helps us remember who we already are in Christ. This is a message of a lot of the New Testament letters. Here's who you are in Christ, now be that. Be who you already are. Walk in this truth. And wisdom helps us live in the new identity that Christ has given us. And that wisdom comes from the Holy Spirit who now lives in us and leads us to the truth of God's word and helps us understand, 1 Corinthians 2, what we have been freely given by God. But just because we are faithful, that doesn't mean that we get to live on autopilot for the rest of our lives until Jesus returns. Remember what we said in Philippians 2, what Paul said in Philippians 2, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you to will and to do, to desire, to want to do it, and then to actually do it. What pleases him. Don't forget what John said in chapter 13. He said, this calls for wisdom. This calls for endurance and faithfulness from the saints. Don't forget that even though Christ has rescued us from the brothel, the prostitute is still enticing. But don't forget that Jesus has already given us all that we need to remain faithful to him because he's given us himself and everything along with him. And he's the Lord of lords and king of kings. So when the world offers us pleasure, we need to turn it down because we know that this pleasure is just a candy coating for pain and bitterness and death. When the world promises wealth and security, we need to securely walk away because we know that the one wearing the purple and the scarlet dress who's adorned in gold and jewels and pearls will only end up desolate and naked and we've already been guaranteed the kingdom of God. We have treasures stored up for us. Somewhere else where moth does not destroy and rust does not destroy. When the world demands that we call something right and good that God says is wrong and bad, we need to speak up and tell the truth in love, even when the world retaliates with hatred and harm. You see, the more we find Christ Himself irresistible, the more we will resist what the prostitute offers us and demands from us. Jesus is our only hope. He always was and always will be. That's why we gather every Sunday to worship Jesus together by singing and praying and preaching and practicing his word. That's why we help each other connect the realities of the gospel with the realities of our lives throughout the rest of the week. We need to be captivated by Christ over and over again. The ways of this world are seductive. But we need to know that they're also self-destructive. So we need to resist the prostitute and remain faithful to our true love. And don't you know that we don't have to do that in our own power? But we still have to do it. Jesus is forever faithful to us. The pleasures and the securities of this world are always short-lived and they are never worth the cost. Following Jesus in this world, yes, is costly. But faithfulness to Christ is always worth the cost to us because Jesus has already paid the price in full for our every sin. It's only through Christ that we find eternal pleasure and security. So may we spurn the advances of the notorious prostitute. You know why? Because when we stop going to her, she'll keep coming to us. And we do that because we're utterly captivated. Captivated not by the notorious prostitute, but by the glorious lamb. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we're thankful for Jesus, our (laughs) our Redeemer, our Prince, our King, our Husband. Lord, we confess that we wander in unfaithfulness, even though we know this love of Christ. We're prone to wander. Lord, as the song says, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. Oh, Lord, take and seal our hearts for your courts above. Help us, Jesus, to fix our eyes on you, to behold your beauty over and over again through your word, that your spirit would draw us to a deeper love for you, that your church together, we would run, flee from temptation, and run to Christ together reminding each other of how terrible and detestable the things are that the prostitute has to offer us and how incredible and glorious everything Christ has to offer us because Christ offers us himself. May we rest in that reality and may you strengthen us to be faithful to our true love for his glory and our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.